when I moved out on my own, I had to adjust to grocery shopping. My mom always did the grocery shopping and I was starting to learn how to cook, but I was still pretty new at buying ingredients. And one of the things I realized is that if you go to a store like Aldi or even Walmart, they have the name brand items, pop, staples, produce, things like that. But they also have the generic version, the knockoffs as some people call them. And so I decided they were a lot cheaper in some cases that I would try them out. And to be honest, some things like chips or some certain kinds of pop aren't too bad. They're not too much different. And for the price, you're willing to maybe eat or drink the generic version of something without any consequence. But there are certain things that you just want the name brand and you're not, you don't care how much it's going to cost. I don't know how many of you can put up with generic peanut butter, but I really like Jiffy peanut butter. And sometimes I'm just willing to go out and pay whatever the extra is just for some Jiffy peanut butter. There's other things like that as well. And your staples that you're willing to just pay a little bit more for. You start to think about, I think about like pop. What's the difference between Pepsi and one of the generic knockoffs? Well, I honestly think sometimes you can have the same ingredients. You can have Pepsi in another bottle, but when you don't have the logo on it, when you don't have the design on it, there's something about it that just makes it lose its impact. The branding, and these companies have thought about this, the branding, the way they present their product means something. And that's why you see the brands of companies like Logo or Pepsi and um, Coke and all these different places, they change over time. They continually update their branding. What we want to see this morning is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In verses 13 and 14, it says, "...in him also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit." And many times, and I'll be honest, this was my understanding of the text. We read that word seal, and we think it's like almost a vacuum seal, a protective seal that you're putting on something to preserve it. And while the Holy Spirit does preserve our salvation, and we'll see that this morning, this idea of a seal really is an identification, almost like a logo, a branding that is put on you by the Spirit, showing that you are a child of God of God. And just like there are some people who can buy the generic, the knockoff brands, things that look similar to the original, there's people in the world who look like they're Christians, but they have not been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So we want to look this morning at the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. In the book of Ephesians, we're looking at our identity in Christ in these last couple sermons, we've looked just at verses 3 through 14 at the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Holy Spirit. All three of them are God. All three of them are members of the Trinity, but they all do different things in salvation. God is the architect of salvation. He plans out salvation before time. Christ is the, subs- is the substitute for Salvation. He died for our sins. He's called the propitiation. He redeemed us. He bought us back, as we saw last week. The Spirit works in salvation, 
And this morning we're going to pay attention to a couple specific things that he does in our lives. We often misunderstand sometimes the work of the Spirit. It's said of more Baptist Bible church circles that we don't emphasize the Holy Spirit like we should. And maybe that's true. There are other denominations who might, I don't want to say overemphasize, but they misunderstand the work of the Spirit what the Spirit does in the life of a believer. So what we want to see this morning is that we should praise the Spirit for his work in salvation. Each member of the Trinity here does something in our salvation. Each member of the Trinity is praised by Paul with the phrase, to the praise of his glory. So we're going to look, first of all, the first way we see the Spirit working is that the Spirit seals our salvation. The Spirit seals our salvation. If you're using notes, it'll say he seals our salvation. Let's look at verse 13 of chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. We were talking about last week in verses 7 through 12, the work of Christ. Now Paul is reminding us of what Christ has done with that phrase, in him. And in him, or in Christ, is used over 30 times in Ephesians to show us our identity in Christ, that these things have been done in him or because of him. We as believers are in Christ. That's why we're called Christians. We're part of the body of Christ. And now we, all, we want to see what it means to be part of the body of Christ here by looking at the work of the Spirit in our salvation. What does the Spirit do? Well, there's a couple other places I want to go first. Other passages of Scripture that show us the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Go to Titus chapter 3. We'll see he regenerates. Titus chapter 3, and we'll look at verse 5. I'll start in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. When you're saved, the Holy Spirit regenerates us. He renews us. He gives us new life. We see in Ephesians, one of the things it tells us is that we're dead. You are dead in trespasses and sins. This is a life-giving work done by Christ on the cross, but it's made effectual in our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit. He regenerates us. We see in Acts chapter 2, he baptizes us. And we see that in other passages of Scripture as well. The Spirit baptizes us. What does that mean? Well, it's not like water baptism. In water baptism, you're not being saved, but it's a profession of your faith Show others that you were once dead in sin, buried in the likeness of death, raised to walk in newness of life. It's a profession that you are a Christian. Well, the Spirit does a baptizing work as well at your salvation, taking you from the kingdom of darkness, as Paul says, transferring you into the kingdom of his beloved Son in the book of Colossians. And then here we see that he seals. In verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1, 
The Spirit seals us. And we want to pay attention to this work. We see, first of all, that the reason is because we're in Christ. The reason we can be sealed is because we're in Christ. We see this word used over 30 times in the book of Ephesians. It reminds us of our identity in Christ, his sacrifice for sins. In, chapter, in verses 7 through 12, we see that Christ redeems us. He gives us an inheritance. He gives us the forgiveness of our sins. He's lavished grace on us. This is all because of what Christ has done in our life. We see this happens at salvation. Look at those next couple phrases. When you heard the word of truth, this starts to show us more of the process of salvation that we've seen in Ephesians chapter 1. There was a time before you were saved where you heard the gospel. Now, it may have been in a sermon. It may have been in a Bible study. It may have been in Sunday school when you were younger or older. It may have been at a revival service. It could have just been a phone call or a conversation with a friend. You could have read the Bible on your own, but what is true about all of us who are saved is that all of us heard the word of truth. Maybe it was in a gospel track and you didn't even open up a Bible. You read the words of scripture, the message of the gospel, you heard the word of truth, and you were saved. This is another ministry of the Spirit, the illuminating work of the Spirit. He helps us understand God's word. He draws us to salvation. The unsaved mind isn't able to comprehend the work of God. They think, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that it's foolishness. Why would we have anything to do with this? But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we see that the Spirit causes light to shine into darkness, helping us understand God's word. We see in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. There was a time when we heard God's word, and then we believed. Look at how Paul describes the gospel here. It says, the word of truth. It's important that we know that the Bible is true. It's important that we know that the Bible is inspired by God, breathed out by God. It is God's word. It is also without error. If the Bible had errors in it, how could we trust it? How could we know that it's true for life? Some people think, well, some of the Bible is inspired, but not all of it. Usually the passages we don't like. No, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is without errors, and therefore it is trustworthy. When Paul calls the Bible the word of truth, he's talking about inspiration, but he's also saying that it's the word of absolute truth. It's true for all of us. It's not relative truth. You'll meet people who say, it is fine for you to live by the Bible, what the Bible says, but I'm going to live my life in a different way, through another book or through another philosophy. And everybody has their own truth that's right for them. No, the Bible is the absolute truth. It tells us right and wrong. It tells us God's word. And it is true for everyone. There's many different people who will tell you different things about life. We know that the Bible is true and authoritative for our life. 
Many people don't want to accept the gospel because they don't want to know what the Bible says about them. The Bible says that there is a God and that it's not us. That's so hard for so many people to understand because we want to be the God of our own life. When you hear the word of truth, you start to realize, hey, there's a God, there's a higher power, and I don't have any control over it. The Bible tells us that we are sinful. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You're unable to save yourself. If it weren't for the work of Christ, all of us would be separated from God forever. The Bible tells us that you can have eternal life when you put your faith and trust in Christ, when you have a relationship with him. It's not just hearing the word of God, but it's understanding what the Bible says about you. The word of truth here. Paul uses another phrase. He says, the gospel of your salvation. That word gospel means good news. The message that God saves you. He renames this idea here. He's trying to give us another explanation of what we heard. It's not just absolute truth, because that seems kind of daunting, but it's good news. It not only tells you that you're sinful, it tells you that there's a way to deal with your sin. It not only tells you that without God you'd be separated, but it tells you how you can know God and have a relationship with him. There are people who understand that they're sinful, but they won't do anything about it. They don't think that there's any hope for them. And that's not true. The Bible is not just about trying to convict us of sin. The Bible is trying to get us to confess our sin so that we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. This salvation reminds us that we've been saved from sin. He points out here that we've believed in him. So we not only heard... We've also believed the gospel. Again, this shows us the timing. You heard God's word. Maybe it was in that moment. You heard, you understood, you believed. Or maybe it was over time. You began to hear, you heard more, you heard more. Maybe you wrestled with it. There were years where you tried to just understand what God was doing in your life. But eventually you believed and you were saved. Paul's describing this salvation process in the life of a believer. And then he says, you were sealed. And we see this action here, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Paul does all this to set up our salvation experience. He reminds the Ephesians who were believers that you at one time heard the gospel Paul knows they heard the gospel because he was probably the one who shared the gospel with him. If it wasn't Paul, it was Apollos and, or Aquila and Priscilla or Apollos. He reminds them they heard and they believed. And during that time, the Holy Spirit sealed them. And here we see this work from the Spirit of God. Now, like I said earlier, we think of a seal sometimes as a seal of protection, And yes, through the Spirit's work, we are protected. We have eternal security. But in Paul's day, this word had a different connotation. It was a mark. It was a logo. It was a stamp of authenticity. How many of you would have food in your house if the protective seal was broken? You open up some milk, they have that little seal on top, and it's punctured. It's broken. You can start to smell that it's going bad. Well, none of us would. We don't want to get sick. How many of us would buy milk from the grocery store that's clearly expired? It's no longer any good. 
Those labels are put on our food to protect us from getting sick. How are we sealed in the Spirit? The seal, like I said, is representation, not only showing our security, but it shows us our identity in Christ. And there's a lot of different ways that people think this happens. Maybe it's through baptism from the Spirit. Through the baptism of the Spirit, we're marked, we're identified as believers. It's kind of like water baptism. It's a public profession of your faith. I would say that I think this happens through the indwelling of the Spirit in the life of a believer. And I want to point out a phrase that Paul uses. He says, you are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And this is something we see all throughout Scripture in the Gospels, that the Spirit was promised to come. Turn to John chapter 14 for a moment. In these chapters, Jesus is talking with his disciples, knowing that he's about to go to his death. And in verse 14, or in chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even, what does that say? The Spirit of truth, whom this world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You knows him, for he what? dwells with you and will be in you. This promise is that the Spirit would come, he knows the word of truth, and he would dwell in us. Later on in chapter 16, verse 13, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak and will declare to you the things that will come. Again, the promise of the Holy Spirit. What's he going to do? He will dwell with us. He'll guide us in truth. Luke chapter 24, you don't have to turn there, but verse 49 says, And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Acts chapter 1 verse 5, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Again, this promise that the Spirit of God would come. Later on in verse 8 of Acts 1, but you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all of Samaria to the end of the earth. There is a promise in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, that the Spirit would come. We know the Spirit came at Pentecost. We see everything happens there with the apostles and the Spirit is now here. The Spirit was promised to come to reveal truth to believers. How does the Spirit do that? Well, he indwells believers. He lives in us. We see this in a couple different passages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit with whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul's trying to show us That when you're saved, it's not just you that lives in your body anymore. You are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. This was promised by Christ and it's happening now in believers. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 describes this sealing process of the Spirit again. And Paul says, And who has put his seal on us and given us his Spirit 
in our hearts as a guarantee. The Spirit indwells us, and I believe this is how we are sealed when the Spirit begins to indwell believers. Have you ever noticed that when someone new moves into your house, things begin to change? Before I got married, I used to clean one way. I used to have everything organized in a certain way. When my wife moved in, things changed. And things changed for the better. Now we have an actual system for how we organize things. We don't just do surface cleaning, but we do deep cleaning so that things actually are cleaned. I own a duster now, which I didn't own when I was single. And now we actually dust things in the house. When Alicia moved in, she said... I know how you used to live, but there's a better way to live, and now we're going to live differently. And for believers, we were once dead in trespasses and sins. We heard the gospel, we believed, and now the Spirit lives with us. And what is the Spirit doing? It's changing us. The Spirit says, hey, you used to live in this way. You used to use this kind of language, but you shouldn't use that language anymore because you've been made new, because you're a believer. And all throughout Ephesians, we're going to see that principle play out. When Paul says, you don't live like the Gentiles do anymore in your darkened mind and your speech and how you act towards other people, because you are a new person. It's interesting, as I talk to unbelievers, I'll have unbelievers come up to me and they'll say, I've heard Christians swear. I've heard Christians gossip about people. I've heard Christians do the same things that my friends and I do that we know are wrong. What's different about them? And what's different about a Christian is that they know they shouldn't be doing that anymore. Every time you use that kind of language, every time you go back to those actions, every time you act like you used to be before you're saved, the Holy Spirit begins to what? Convict you of sin. Show you that you need to change. And some of us, doubt our salvation some of us have questions about our salvation because we say i know i shouldn't sin but i keep doing those things that i used to do and i'm worried about my salvation because i feel what guilty i feel shame from these things and i would say to you this the fact that you're beginning to feel that guilt and shame from when you sin is an evidence that the spirit is working in your heart and that you are a believer Does that make sense? The Spirit is working in our heart, changing us, convicting us of sin. It's an evidence that we have been saved. We start having godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. What does that mean? Worldly sorrow is upset about being caught for sin. Someone found out that I'm sinful. Godly sorrow is upset that we've sinned against God and broken his law. So the Spirit begins to change us, begins to convict us of sin, begins to help us live like we should in Christ, and the world begins to take notice. People come into my house now after Alicia's been there. They say, there's decorations. I used to have nothing on my walls. I thought, why would you need anything on your walls? You just live in a house? She says, no, we're going to put pictures up and we're going to put decorations up. When people come in, they say, it just looks so much better in here. My parents came over, they said, it's so nice to see that you've actually done something with the place. Why is that? Because she's began to change the way that I live. And in the same way, as you're a Christian, you begin to grow, you begin to change. And why is that? Through the work that the Spirit is doing in you. 
This sealing process begins at salvation, but it begins to show other people that you're not the same person, that you've been changed. And every time you try to live like you used to live, you're not living like you are in Christ. You're living like you once were. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, I'm exhorting you not to live like you used to live, like the Gentiles now live. So we can be thankful for the promise of the Holy Spirit. We can be thankful that the Spirit has come and has worked in our hearts in salvation. This work that God has done for us, Jesus says no one can pluck us from the Father's hand. What's now been what's once promised in the Spirit is now taking place. We can see how we're living differently through the gospel, through what the Spirit has done for us. And this should cause us to live differently, both personally and as a church. Personally in your life, understanding the work of the Spirit, understanding what the Spirit has done in your life, should cause you to change. Now maybe you're like me, you were saved at a young age. I wasn't robbing banks, I wasn't using foul language at six years old, I was six. The Spirit did begin to change me over time, and I would say probably kept me from doing some of those things. Other people who have been saved at later on in life, maybe you can see a bigger difference from before you were saved to after you're saved. But for us, personally, the Spirit should cause us to change, and it should cause other people to see a difference in us as believers. How many of us as individuals, if you were to ask people in your life, your family, the place you work, the people you know in your community, how many of them would know that you're a Christian without you saying something just by the way you live your life? How many of us really truly live like we have been changed by the Spirit? This should cause us to think about how we operate as a church as well. There are many pastors who have given a bad name to the gospel. Why? Because they've preached to people and they've said the gospel isn't about salvation, but it's about health, wealth, and prosperity. It's about things that are going to get you rich, and it's not about what Christ has done for you. There are people out here who preach that message and who bring shame to the name of Christ. There's many churches who have decided that the best thing they can do with their time is political involvement, is caring about social issues, but not being focused on the gospel of Christ. As the Spirit works in you personally, it should be working in our church corporately to cause us to look differently to the outside world. The Spirit seals us and it marks us and other people should know that we're different. We see the second work of the Spirit is that he guarantees our salvation. He guarantees our salvation. We see this in verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That word guarantee means a deposit, a down payment. Similar to what we think of when we buy a house or a car. You put a certain amount of money down on a house or car, and what are you saying? I'm going to pay the rest of it over time. There's not many of us who have a couple hundred thousand dollars to go buy a house with cash. And if you do, let me know. But none of us have that kind of money 
to be able to pay for it in full. So we put a down payment on something and we say, hey, we're going to pay for this over time. But that down payment is a promise that I will pay the rest of it when I have the money. We see that the Spirit is our guarantee. Paul says the guarantee of our inheritance. So how does the Spirit do this? How does he guarantee our inheritance? We talked about our inheritance last week. It is the promise that we're sons and daughters of God and that one day we will be with God and we will experience him fully in a way we only can partially right now. The Spirit works in many different ways in the life of a believer. After salvation, he indwells us, like I said. He bears fruit in our life. He gifts believers. He illuminates, reveals scripture, convicts us of sin, comforts us. All of these ministries from the Spirit shows that he's working in our life. But in understanding the guaranteeing work of the Spirit, we need to understand what we are promised in heaven. Ephesians 2.7 says, So that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Meaning there will be a day when we realize the grace that we've been given by God in heaven. So it causes us to think about, okay, the Spirit guarantees our inheritance. What is our inheritance? And for that, we want to understand heaven. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. In verse 1, it says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down in heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, a dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. So we see this glimpse of heaven that, that John gets here in Revelation chapter 21. And what does he see? A new heaven, a new earth, Jerusalem coming down. And what is that going to be? A dwelling place for God and man. What did I say the Spirit does in our life? He dwells in us. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But there will be a time when we don't have that anymore when we're in heaven and we dwell with God and he will be there forever. So what this is, is in part now, we experience the presence of God in salvation. We have the Holy Spirit. He convicts us of sin. He shows us how we should live. He explains God's word. There will be a day in, a, in the future when we dwell with God personally, physically, just as God intended for us to do. What will heaven be like? Well, think about what earth was like before sin. Adam and Eve knew God. They talked to him. He walked in the garden with him. God desired to have fellowship, but couldn't because of sin. What does it say here in Revelation chapter 21? God will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear away. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. All these former things have passed away. You start seeing what? The effects of the fall are fading out. There's no more crying. He's wiping tears away. All these things that began in the fall were not designed by God for perfect humanity. Pain and suffering, sadness, depression, all these different things that we experience just on a day-to-day basis will not be anymore in heaven. This is part of our promised inheritance. This is what we look forward to. How many of us look forward to a day when we won't mourn for loved ones who have passed away anymore? How many of us look forward to a day when we see loved ones who have gone to heaven before us? Well, all of us do. So the pain we experience in life is temporary, knowing that there is a future inheritance coming in the future. We see this is part of God's plan for believers. In 1 John 3, 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not appeared yet. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. When we're in heaven, not only will we be with God, we will have new glorified bodies. We will be like him. Now, what does that mean? There's a lot of debate over what that means, but I do know we'll be different. We won't be sinful anymore. We won't be plagued by our sin-filled bodies, by our imperfect bodies. We'll be like God. Crying, suffering, sadness, loss, there will be none of that in heaven. Instead, we will have joy. We will have fellowship with him. So this is what we look forward to in our inheritance. But Paul says the spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. So how does he guarantee our inheritance? He dwells in us now, reminding us of what's coming in the future. The spirit begins to change us, to work in our hearts, to make us more like Christ. Reminding us, guess what? One day there's going to be a day when we're perfect. Now, how many of us are perfect now? None of us. But we know there is a day coming when we will have glorified bodies. When we're sad, when things happen in our lives that are terrible, that make us mourn, the Spirit comforts us. How many of you have been through a hard time and you've said, I don't know how I could deal with this if I wasn't a Christian? And why is that? The Spirit comforts us. The Spirit gives us hope that this isn't the end, that there is a future day coming where all will be made right. Turn to the end of Revelation chapter 1 and look at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives light, and its lamp is the lamb by its light the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring glory into it the gates will never be shut by day and there will never be and there will be no night there they will bring into it glory and honor of the nations but nothing unclean will enter into it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life Think about what the worship will be like there in heaven. There's no need for a temple. Why? Because God is there present with us. We can worship him directly. All the things that we have set up now to try to worship God that are here because we don't have God physically present with us, 
will be no more because we have him there. It says there's no need for light in the city because God is the purest light. We won't need to worry about changing the light bulbs or making sure that there's proper lighting because God is shining through his glory. We see lastly that the purpose of the Spirit's work is worship. We are to worship God. Paul says back in Ephesians chapter 1, to the praise of his glory. All of what the Spirit does should cause us to praise and worship God. Each member of the Trinity in Ephesians 1 is praised for what he's doing in salvation. So this morning we should worship our great God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit for how we have been saved. God plans our salvation. Christ died for our salvation. The Spirit seals and guarantees our salvation. As we study Ephesians, we'll find that God is worthy to be praised because of the great gifts he has given to us. As believers, we should respond to what God has done by living a different life. Is your life that you are living a life lived in praise to God? Are you honoring him with your body? Paul says our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned earlier that when my wife moved into the house, things changed. Things got better. But one of the things that she's helped me with is that there are times where I still want to make the house a mess. I leave things. I don't pick up after myself. I don't clean up messes like I should. She has to gently tell me, we need to pick this up. We need to change this. We need to improve our situation. And I don't want to work against what she's doing there. As believers, the Spirit is working in our hearts to transform us. But sometimes we don't always live like we should. We still sin. We still struggle with sin like we did when we were unsaved. Sometimes we grieve the Spirit in our hearts. And so this morning, are you walking in the Spirit? Are you living by the fruit of the Spirit? Are you more known for the works of the flesh that Paul describes or is your life characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control? Sometimes you see people and you say, I don't know how they could be so patient. I don't know how they can love others like they do. I don't know how they can show this much kindness. I don't know how they can be so gentle. Well, it's because the Spirit is working in their hearts it's beginning to bear fruit. How many of you, when God works in your life, you've seen a change in how you deal with others? Maybe you're not as angry as you used to be. Maybe you find yourself being more patient. You find yourself able to love others like you should. It's through the work of the Spirit, showing that you've been saved, showing that you're a child of God, showing that you have an inheritance in heaven. So as we close this morning, I want to ask us, have you been sealed by the Spirit? Has there been a point in time where you have been saved, where you've realized your condition is lost, where you realize your need for salvation? Is the Spirit working in your heart? Can you remember a time when you heard the word of truth? You recognized, hey, I'm a sinner. I need salvation from God. I need to believe in Him. Have you been sealed by the Spirit? 
Secondly, do you recognize the eternal guarantee of the Spirit? Do you put your hope in heaven? When you care for the things of the world, your physical life, your material, your finances, even personal relationships, it will often lead you towards depression. It will often lead you towards hopelessness. Why is that? Because Solomon says life is vanity. He says, I have all these things. I have all this money. I have all these possessions. I have all these earthly goods. I have all these people in my life. And in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, he says, I want to die. There's nothing in life that's worth living for. So do we live for a hope that is eternal? Knowing that the things of the world will not satisfy us, we look forward to a day where we will find our satisfaction in God. And then as we're here, are you walking in the Spirit? Are you, is your life characterized by the fruit of the Spirit or by the way you used to live as an unbeliever? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Spirit who is working in our hearts. We ask that you would help us, help our lives to be characterized by what the Spirit has done in us. Help us to live by the fruit of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh. We pray that others would know us both personally and as a church, as people who have been saved and have been transformed by you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Let's all stand together as we close this morning. We're going to sing hymn number five.